0: Maybe seated. <clears throat> For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt McCann. Me and my wife Laura, attend this church, and I am right now going through the pastoral residency track, which means I am sitting with the pastors of this church, sitting under them, being taught and learning. Um, but if it's OK with, with you guys, I'm going to switch it around from I'm in the pastoral residency track to I am this church's resident pastor. So I'm just going to switch the words around, make myself look better, Um, make it more admirable. Okay, Pats are playing at 1 p.m. today. That is not an announcement. I'm going to use a football analogy. If you don't like sports or football, you'll still get this analogy. If on the Pats' first down, Brady, hold on, that's Tom Brady. If you don't know that Tom Brady is the Patriots quarterback, please, please see a pastor after church. First down, first down the Pats have, right? They throw... Brady throws it across the field, 15 yards complete to Gronkowski. Gronkowski's an incredible tight end. He gets the ball, he turns around, field's completely open, no opposing teammates in front of him. At that point, you're probably going to get up and be like, yes, yes, let's go, because it's looking like it's going to be a big play. How mad would you be if out of nowhere, a Patriots player tackled Gronkowski and tried to strip the ball from him? They're on the same team. You'd be wicked mad, right? That wouldn't make any sense. And if it happened over and over again, it really wouldn't make any sense. You just wouldn't know what was going on. Why? Because you're not supposed to play against your own team. Your team is your team, and you're supposed to act in a way that's for their good. And if you don't, and you start tackling your own guys, then you don't understand the concept of playing for a team. You're not making any sense. You'd be a disgrace. You'd be hurtful to the team. The organization, the coaches, the players, the fans, everybody wouldn't want you to play for the team. You'd have to be off the team. You're acting against the team. All right, I think I'm proving my point. If you're a part of a team, you're part of a team, right? Another team analogy, one that's deeper, is your family. So picture this with me. If my wife calls me and she tells me she got a huge promotion and raise at work, and I get all huffy, puffy, and upset because I didn't get a raise at work You'd say I'm an idiot, right? That wouldn't make any sense. If she called me and she told me that she got a raise and a promotion at work, and I get upset because I didn't get a raise and promotion at work, you'd say I was reacting in a way that, wasn't, that didn't make sense, right? My wife's good is my good because she's part of my family. My wife is my family, and so her good is my family's good. Why would I hate on something that happened to her that's good? Why would my, my sour response in that situation wouldn't make any sense, all right? I, I don't think I have to prove this philosophically. I think everyone gets the concept of a team, right? Everyone gets what a family is. So today we have a beautiful text of scripture that only makes sense if you get the concept of family, if you get the concept of a team. Today we're in Galatians one twenty-two, and the main thing I want get, to get at here is the Jerusalem Christians' response to the ministry of Paul. So in these verses we have Paul painting a very clear picture of the Christians who lived in Jerusalem at their response, their heart response to hearing about the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry. They have this beautiful, godly, holy, gospel-reasoned response to hearing about the fruitfulness of Paul, his conversion and ministry. So I want to hold that out, I want to hold that response out for us to look at. And then at the end, we'll use it to look at our own hearts. So a little bit of context leading up into chapter 1, verse 22. First, got to remember who Paul was, right? He was Saul of Tarsus. He was respected, and he's moving up in the ranks of Judaism, and he hated Christians, hated Christians. Call this Old Paul. Old Paul's personal mission, one that he had sanctioned and commissioned by the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders, was to track Christians down, go to their house, knock on the door, and pull them outside. And when I hear that, I think of that by the head. He was to grab them and get them in prison. That's old Paul. And then what happens? Jesus saves old Paul. Old Paul becomes new Paul. Jesus literally, in person, shows up and changes Paul's whole course of life and converts him. And so Paul becomes a Christian. He loves Jesus, He's chosen and commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel to the nations. He's new Paul. So in our text today, Paul, this is Paul. He fairly recently was converted. And since his conversion, he's been preaching the gospel. And that's when we come to verse 21. And can go there with me. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, verse 22. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea, that are in Christ. So at this point in Paul's life, he's preaching the gospel north north ish of Jerusalem. He's up. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else. When I think of north, I think of up, New Hampshire, Maine, Canada, those are all up. So Paul's up in Cilicia, in Syria, Syria, above Jerusalem. And this is what he says about the churches who haven't seen him in person. He says this literally: I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea. Paul just hasn't preached the gospel house to house, and in the marketplaces in Jerusalem, like he's been doing everywhere else, like he's been doing in other places. He's been largely in other places. So he just hasn't met these Jerusalem Christians in person. But look at how he refers to them. Churches of Judea that are in Christ. So I want to deal with this in Christ. Let's talk through that. An easy way to get into this, right? When Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, he starts like this. To the saints that are in Ephesus, meaning if you wanted to meet an Ephesian, you had to go to a place called Ephesus, right? An Ephesian person is located in a place called Ephesus. So if I call you on the phone and I say, where are you? And you say, I'm in the market basket up the street. I'd know where you are. Well, First, you'd have to tell me which one because there's like a million. But I'd know where you are. And if I wanted to go and see where you were, I could go up there and we could talk face to face. We'd be in market basket. Your location would be a place called Market Basket. All right, now, beautifully, the New Testament uses the same preposition in to describe a Christian's relational location in a person. A person's relational location in the person of Jesus Christ. So your location can be in a place, like right now, you're in this church with all its beautiful deep red colors, right? Your location can be in a time. It's 10.30, and by the time we're done the sermon, it will be, what, 3.30? Or your location can be in a person, right? Meaning you are relationally and intimately identified with a person. Your location is inside of a person. Some biblical examples. Jesus uses it like this. John 14.20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, in you, in me, and I in you. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that his identity is wrapped up and understood only in God the Father. Jesus' relationship is so intimately tied to God the Father that you can't understand who Jesus is without knowing who God is. They can't be separated. So he's also saying that the believer, and when he says you here, he's talking to his disciples, the believer has an identity that is wrapped up In Jesus. He says, you in me, right? And I in you. Let me go to one more place. The Bible uses this like this. And it's from Paul, his letter to the Philippians. Philippians 3.8. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So Paul wants it so that if people are looking for Paul or God is looking for Paul, that they have to go to Jesus to find Paul. So where's Paul? Paul's in Jesus, right? What, what's all this mean? Big idea here. It means that all Christians, all believers, have the same source for identity. They have the same location. It's in Jesus. All Christians are relationally and intimately located in the person of Christ. So this is simple, but it's like really, really deep right? You could, you'll chew on this for the rest of your Christian walk until you die. Back to our text. Paul has never met these Jerusalem Christians that he's, that he's talking about, but he says that they are in Christ as he is. So to Paul, these Jerusalem Christians are family members. They've never met in person, but they're family. They're on the same team. They have the same home, which is the person of Jesus Christ. Paul and these Christians have banked their whole lives on the same relationship with Jesus, banking their lives that God is their father through Jesus. And so keep that, keep that in mind. We're going to revisit that a little bit later. Next verse. Verse 23. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy So Paul is referring to these people whom he's never met. He's referring to them as family. They are in Christ like he is. They have the same relationship with Jesus, the same relationship with God the Father. And and so right here what this verse is, it's Paul summarizing the talk that's going on about him throughout Jerusalem. The talk that's happening about him among the Christians in Jerusalem. So there's this buzz about old Paul and new Paul. Like what is this? What's going on? And people are talking about it. And this is what they're saying. Hey, the old Paul that hated us, chased us, persecuted us, wanted to literally destroy us and kill us. He's now new Paul. And new Paul preaches the faith. All right, so the important thing I want to pull out of this, the important words I want to pull out of this is the faith. I want to deal with that. Big idea in this is the faith makes family members in Christ. So it's important that we know what Paul's Paul's talking about when he says the faith here. If anyone can be said to be in Christ, it's because they've got the faith. So I want to know what that is. First, I'll note, not everything is the faith. Not everything is the faith. There are boundaries to this. You You can think of it like a fence. So there are statements and beliefs that are inside the fence, and these make up the faith and there are statements and beliefs contrary to the faith, and those are outside the fence, all right? Now, a fence is negative connotation. I know, I know when you think of fences, you can think of bad things. But they're necessary, right? On the island of Jurassic Park, they had this fence that kept the dinosaurs outside, away from the humans. What happened when the fence didn't work? We had a great movie, right? Dinosaurs were like biting people in half. Fences are a good thing. You learned that lesson from that movie. Fences keep enemies out. So there is a the faith in the Bible, and then there are statements and beliefs that are not of the faith. Biblical faith. There are churches today that are in the faith, and there are churches today that are outside of the faith. Paul in in this verse doesn't deal with this in detail, clearly. He just kind of like brushes it into his letter, the faith. He assumes that who he's writing to understand what he's talking about. And so what I want to do is just briefly put some parameters, some definitions on what the faith is in broad terms, what Paul's talking about here. And here it is, all right? Biblical, true, orthodox, orthodox historical faith. Ready? I'll begin. The eternal Son of God was born on earth in the flesh as Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect, blameless, holy life, and then he died by being crucified and murdered on a cross. Jesus willingly gave his life on this cross to be the sacrifice for sin that removed the wrath of God from man. Jesus was taken off the cross dead, and he was put in a grave. Three days later, though, he was resurrected and in the flesh, He came back from the dead. He appeared alive in the flesh, in person, to many witnesses. He ascended into heaven, and now he's at the right hand of God the Father, where he's been since his ascension. Now, get this. Any person that trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins has eternal life and will worship God for all of eternity in a new heaven and new earth. So that is the faith. All right? Believe it or not, that is the faith. Those are the essentials that cannot be, be, that cannot be missing from someone's mouth and someone's heart when they say that they've got the faith. All right? So there's more to it. There's more to the faith. There's more detail to it. Um, the Bible has a lot more to say about saving faith, the history of God and salvation, right? How he saves. The Bible talks a lot about this. But what I've said is Orthodox Christianity in a nutshell. That is what has to be believed. And that is what here Paul is talking about when he says the faith. So here's how I understand verses 22 and 23. Summarize quickly and we'll move on. I see in Christ, it's a family statement. It's an identity statement. All Christians are family in Christ. There are things that this family must believe in order to be in the family. And that, that stuff that they believe, what they believe, Is the faith. Okay. Now, knowing that, what is the response of these Jerusalem Christian family members when they hear about what happened to Paul and what Paul's doing? What's their response? They erupt into praise to God, and they glorified God because of me. They love Paul's story love Paul's ministry, they turn what has happened to Paul into an occasion to praise Jesus for it. Praise God. Praise you, God, is what they're thinking, right? God, you're good. Thank you. Thank you for what you did in Paul. Thank you for what you're doing to Paul. Thank you for what you're doing through him. You're good. Be worshipped. Be honored. And they do that because Paul goes from, like, hardened and condemned to Jesus' preacher, Their hearts explode because of that. Complete joy and happiness over this. They they have a default heart setting that it's just quick to praise God when he saves a sinner and he starts doing gospel work through that sinner. They're excited. I read that and I I get the impression like it put an extra bounce in their step that week. They're happy about this. And why? Why? Because Paul is an in Christ family member. Paul preaches the faith. They're on the same team. The Jerusalem Christians get it. A couple of, couple of points on this last text. Notice that they glorified God because Paul was preaching the faith. So it's no mistake in this text that it says the faith, Right? This is how we know, this is how someone knows whether God should be glorified for a conversion or for ministry. The faith is the criteria here. So if a convert is not to the faith or a ministry is not about and for preaching the faith as we've, as we've talked about it, then it's not to the praise and glory of God. Biblically, you we're not happy about conversions to Muhammad or Buddha or Scientology or moralism, right? We're not happy about that. The Bible isn't telling you to start praising God for those situations, right? And I I don't think that's a severe danger in our church, and and, and that's not what this text is talking about, right? The Jerusalem Christian's response is praise God, and it's praise God because the faith is involved. Paul is preaching the faith. So they want the faith to be preached because they want family members, right, and team members worshiping Jesus, giving more glory to God. But the faith is the criteria they use here. Second point is this. They glorified God, not Paul. So, okay. Sorry. I got two points out of this, two dangers I see. That could, that could really have happened here. They could have robbed God in two ways. The first way is this. They could have robbed God of his glory by hating on Paul. So Paul approved of the murder of Stephen, right? Paul dragged Christians out of their houses. They could have not understood the grace and the plan of God to save Paul and use Paul. They could have been cynical about Paul's methods, right? Another way they could have hated on him. They don't know Paul personally, and he's not in Jerusalem. They could have instantly been skeptical about his conversion and about the fruit of his ministry. If they were anything like New Englanders, right, they would have just hated on Paul because he's not from the area and he's doing his own thing. If the Jerusalem Christians made it about us and this place, then every story about Paul and what Paul's doing out there, what God's doing through, through Paul out there, would have been like a searing iron on them. It wouldn't have been to the glory of God. It would have made them bitter. And it would have been to the exaltation of their sinful hearts. So God wouldn't get the glory for saving Paul and using Paul because all they can think about is them and their place. So they could have hated on Paul and thus robbed God of his glory. Second way they could have robbed God of his glory is this. They could have glorified Paul and not God. Here's another danger, and I think this is good for us. They could have made the conversion of Paul about Paul's decision to turn his whole life around. Right? Good for you, Paul. Awesome. You did a great thing. You really turned your life around. You're really serving Jesus now. Good for you, Paul. They could have thought the success of Paul had everything to do with Paul and not God. So their response here is good good for us. It's a good example for us. And it, it, helps, it helps us to see what we do here in and, and keeping in mind in our day, superstar pastors, right? If a pastor or a church has a thriving ministry, then it is to the glory of God. And not, well, let's idolize that church and that pastor. Turn them into a celebrity for our hearts to idolize. Success in the fruit of pastors and ministries is for the praising of God not for the praising of sinful pastors. Okay, so they could have robbed God of his glory there too by glorifying Paul. And that's our text. That's our text today. We have Christians in Jerusalem who, like Paul, are in Christ. Their family, their identity is located in the exact person of Christ together. And what makes them family is this the faith. And because Paul is family, and he is preaching the faith, he's on the same team. And so they glorify God, who, who the whole thing is about. It's beautiful. All right, in the beginning, I said I wanted to lay out, hold out their response so that we can in turn look at our own hearts at this, right? The application and the question is this How does your heart respond when you hear about the fruitfulness of? other, the faith, preaching churches? What is your heart's response when you hear about other churches that are preaching the faith and you hear about their success? Am I the only one who wants only Seven Mile Road churches to be planted in Massachusetts? All right. Why is it that when I hear of unaffiliated, unassociated, the faith, preaching churches doing good work in their area, I'm instantly skeptical, cynical. I want all my questions answered about them before I utter one praise to God. That's wicked. Seven Mile Road churches are not the only the faith preaching churches. There are other family members in Christ that God is using. They are preaching the faith. They're on my team, right? They're on our team. Organized by God for God. Me hating on them and even being passive about them is sinful. It's like me getting upset with my wife if she was to get a raise and promotion at work. It's honestly like me tackling a member of my own team. So I live in Bill I want to plant a church in Billerica, Tewksbury, that area. And if you know anything about the area, it's close by Chelmsford and Lowell. How come when I hear about the faith preaching churches in that area and they're baptizing local heads and they're doing a great work there and God is doing something, how come I don't get off the couch and excited about it? How come I'm not an extra skip in my, my step and my my bounce? And it doesn't matter if that pastor is from Kansas. It doesn't matter. If he's in Christ, he's a brother, right? He's family. And if he's preaching the faith, we're on the same team. Okay, how's your hype doing with this? When you hear that such and such Bible church up the street is baptizing and making disciples and doing a good work in their town, in their city, what's your first response? you cynical of their approach and methodology first. Skeptical about their converts. What's your first response? Is it to praise God? So we have awesome theology here. I'm not, not afraid to say it. We have strong word-based preaching. Every pastor or preacher, whoever gets up here, will use this and love this. It's beautiful. Our music's on point. Great lyrics. I don't even think that's just um, opinion. We have a love for Massachusetts. We want to see Seven Mile Road churches planted in the area for the glory of God and the good of the people in those areas. But Seven Mile Road is not the only faith, the faith preaching church in Massachusetts or in the country for that matter. We're not the only ones that God is going to use. So there are other people on God's team in the family that it makes zero sense for us to hate on. That makes zero sense for our first inclination to be to hate on him, to be passive about it and not be like overjoyed about it and excited about what God is doing. So that's it. I, I just want to make sure that with me, your heart, right, is about God and the work that he's doing. Because if we're not quick to praise God when he uses other pastors and other ministries, then we're robbing God of glory that he should be getting through us. Pray with me. God, we praise you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for protecting your word and doctrine here. I thank you that it is faithfully preached. Lord, I pray for other churches, that they would be the faith preaching churches, that we would see them as in Christ, family, for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would increase the fruit of their labor for your kingdom. I pray that we wouldn't be closed-minded and only thinking about ourselves, but we would be about your glory and want to see you do amazing things through other preachers, other ministries. Amen.